Welcome to the third in our sequence of podcasts about life in Norman England. In this episode, we're going to have a little look at the changes that the Normans made to the legal system. I'm not necessarily talking about the changes to the hundred courts or the changes to the shire courts, but rather the changes to how it actually worked when you were charged with a crime. The Anglo-Saxon legal system was based very much around society, around the community, around the village. But the Norman system is based much more around society as a whole. You are no longer accountable to the people in your village. You are accountable to the king. You have committed a crime against the king. And the introduction of several of the laws in this period make this shift quite plain. The most obvious one, I think, is the idea of forest law. Now, as always, it's worth reminding ourselves that when we talk about forest law, when we're talking about forests, we're not talking about woodland. A forest is not a woodland. Forest comes from the Latin word, which means outside. It literally means any area where forest law applies. So remember that. A forest is an area where forest law applies. And what is forest law? Well, it is an area put aside for the purposes of hunting, usually by the king, but also sometimes by some other nobles. For example, the marcher lords did this as well. So, forest law is an area where you are not allowed to go unless you are the king. You're certainly not allowed to hunt or poach there. Anybody that is caught doing so will lose their eyes or their hands or something like that. And this is a perfect example, I think, of this shift in how the law works. Forest law is very much about the relationship between the people and the king. These are the king's rights, you shall not trample upon them. Another main change that you'll find in the legal system is the change in language. Now, from a social point of view, remember that the Normans speak French, whereas the Anglo-Saxons speak English, and this makes it almost impossible for them to communicate. Over time, the two languages come together, as you'll see today. One of the things I've talked about with my classes in quite a lot of detail is you can see the archaeology of language when it comes to food. When the animals are in the field, we use Anglo-Saxon terms, pig cow, chicken. When they're on the table, we use Norman terms, beef, pork, capon, veal. And this shows you the social class, the, the, the socio-economic value of these languages. The people who eat the food are Norman and speak French. The people who grow the food are English and speak English. But the language of the law is Latin, and that means you have to be educated in order to be able to access the law. Now, with this all being said, it's worth remembering that in most cases, the Normans do not actually change the legal system. They extend what the Anglo-Saxons were already doing. For example, in this period, there is no such thing as a prison. Prisons simply don't exist. Punishments are usually mutilation, that is, uh, some form of a physical injury, removing an arm, removing a hand, removing an eye, something along those lines, or simple capital punishment, just death. 
and the Normans take this idea and they just go with it. They don't introduce anything new necessarily. They simply carry on with what was being done before, but generally more brutal. I suppose the best example of this increasing brutality is the idea of trial by ordeal. Now, it's worth remembering that the Anglo-Saxons had trial by ordeal, and all the Normans are doing is carrying on with it, using it more, and making it more brutal. What we're about to discuss is perfectly logical. It's not going to sound logical to modern ears. It's not going to sound logical to anybody approaching it from a 21st century, humanistic, post-enlightenment point of view. However, if you get yourself into the medieval mindset, trial by ordeal makes perfect sense. Because underlying all of these strange and rather baroque practices is the idea of judicium dei, the judgment of God. Now remember, in the Middle Ages, belief in God is not really a matter of faith, it is a matter of accepted fact. In the same way that we accept the sun is going to come up in the morning, in the same way that we accept that gravity will act on an object and make it fall, the people in medieval Europe know that God is real. God is omnipotent, and God is omniscient. He is everywhere. He sees everything. He knows everything. He knows when every sparrow falls. And that logically, therefore, means that God is watching over you, and if you are innocent, God will protect you. The judgment of God. Now, if you have your head around that concept, the three things I'm about to explain will make sense. First, we have ordeal by fire. And this comes in two main flavours. The first is that an iron bar is heated until it's red hot, glowing like a cherry. And then the accused person picks it up and walks three steps with it. The hand is then bandaged. And... Three days later, the bandage is unwrapped and examined by a priest. If the priest says that a miracle has occurred or the injury is magically healed, then the person is innocent. If, on the other hand, the person is obviously injured and has a burn, then they are guilty. And you can see the concept of Judicium Dei here. God is watching over you and has ensured that you did not get burned. The second version of trial by fire, or deal by fire, is that you have a cauldron of boiling water, at the bottom of which you place a stone, or the same metal bar, and the accused uh, sticks their hand into the cauldron and pulls out the bar. If they are able to do so, then they are innocent, assuming that the wound which is bandaged is shown to be healed in three days, again examined by a priest. The second one is ordeal by water. And this one's slightly more difficult to get your head around until you realise that it's linked with the idea of ducking witches in the 1600s. It goes something like this. You tie the accused to a chair and you throw them into a body of water, a pond, a stream, a river, anything that's deep enough. If they sink, then they are innocent. If they float, then they are guilty. This, again, doesn't make sense. However, it does when you remember that one of the holiest rites of the church is baptism. Baptism where the baby is washed with holy water and their original sin is washed away. 
Water is the vehicle of baptism. Water is the holy vessel. Therefore, if the water accepts the accused person, they're innocent. If it rejects them and they float, then they're guilty, and they can be hauled out and punished. Now, by now, you should have po probably spotted the problem with this, which is that if you are innocent, you're going to sink and probably drown anyway. But that's the nature of things in the rough-and-tumble world of medieval jurisprudence. This brings us, speaking of rough-and-tumble, onto the last of the three forms of trial, and that is trial by combat. And this is the idea where somebody accuses you of a crime, and so you go and you stand against them in single combat. God, again, is watching. If you are the innocent person, then you shall triumph, and the guilty party will be killed. Most trials by combat were to the death, or in some cases to the other person yielding. In some cases, you could appoint a second, a champion, to fight for you. This method of settling arguments continues, weirdly, in England and Scotland and Wales for quite some considerable time, including mass trials by combat. My personal favourite example of this is the last one in the 1300s, where two Scottish clans fight a trial by combat in order to establish who shall have the honour of holding the right flank in an upcoming battle. Thirty of the best warriors from both clans face each other in battle, more or less kill all of each other until one of them emerges victoriously, leaving their side dangerously underpowered when it comes to the actual battle three days later. Madness. However, that is how trial by combat works. So you can see that these methods of dealing with guilt or innocence, they were already there under the Anglo-Saxon system. All the Normans have done is take them a little bit further, use them a little bit more, and make them a little more brutal and a little more difficult. When you ally this with the fact that the Shire Courts are still there and the Hundred Courts are still there, you can see that the legal system in Norman England still bears a remarkable, remarkable similarity to how it was under the Anglo-Saxons. All that has changed is some of the details and a shift in emphasis towards the power of the king and the rights of the king, and also this change in the language. Remember all of those things, and remember to use the concepts of trial by ordeal and judicium day, because it is a nice way of linking the religious, legal, and political changes that happened after the Norman Conquest. That's a nice little short episode just to fill you in on those things. I hope it's been useful. Thank you very much for listening, and good luck in your exams.